0: Krishna, everyone. I have the very difficult job of introducing Chaitanya Charan Prabhu. Normally, in events, people get away with saying he needs no introduction. And I would have done the same, but I just want to say all the he's done so that we can appreciate him better. On a personal level, I think Chaitanya Charan Prabhu is one of the most analytical, process-driven, scientific people I've ever met, which is why this event really does talk about science and spirituality. I'll read his official introduction, but I've embedded some things of my own in the middle <coughs> So this comes from your YouTube channel, approved by you. Chaitanya Charan Das is a monk, as you can see. Spiritual <laughs> mentor and author, building uh, on his engineering degree from the Government College of Engineering in Pune, he has studied extensively the philosophical and sociological ramifications of modern science. Complementing his scientific education is his keen spiritual sensitivity honed by systematic and sympathetic study of the Bhakti tradition. For uh, longer than my age, more than 20 years. He's been invited as a speaker at several international conferences on the interface of science and spirituality, as is what he's going to talk about today, including the World Peace Conference 2006, World Peace Congress 2008, organized by UNESCO. Based in India, has given talks at colleges and companies all over the world, from Australia to America. The UK wasn't on his radar until recently, but he's promised he's going to come more often than His writings appear regularly in several Indian newspapers also, and he has written 300 articles. He runs this website called The Spiritual Scientist, so that's kind of, again, another stamp of approval as to why he is doing this topic today. And a fun fact about that Spiritual Scientist is, this is not in his official intro, but if you allow me, I'll say it. The Spiritual Scientist magazine was actually started by a personality we know as Bhakti Rasamrat Maharaj, very close to P.S., who passed it down to Radeh Shaham Prabhu, who we also know, president of the Swan Pune, very famous worldwide, who then passed it down to our dear Chaitanya Charam Prabhu. So there's a bit of a parampara going on there, and he's been spreading the spiritual science ever since. He's written 4,000 plus <coughs> daily inspirational uh, reflections, meditations on the Bhagavad Gita, that's called Gita Daily. You see that calendar there also. You can flip through it. He's just reflected so much on the Gita, which is then used for his books also. And he's got 700k plus on Facebook uh, just for Gita Daily. Not even his personal plan. And uh, he's actually written more books than I've ever read in my life <laughs> at 25 or 27, if I'm not wrong. Variety of subjects: science to spirituality, socio-cultural analysis of religion, the ancient texts like the Ramayana, and the Mahabharata, and you all must have heard of this thing called GBC, he's actually a part of the Shastric advisory council of the GBC as well, so an expert in all things Shastra, and also an associate editor of the Back to Godhead magazine, the famous Back to Godhead magazine which was started in Prabhupada's time. But on a more personal level, uh, because, I think Chaitanya Charan is relatively new to our community and Pandavasena. I want to relate with personalities we do know in PS. And three personalities came to mind. Radhanath Maharaj, Bhakti Rasamrit Maharaj and Keshav Maharaj. All three of whom Chaitanya Charan Prabhu is very close to. If you look at the journey home and you go to the end, you'll see his name sprinted on it. Radhanath Maharaj's journey home. Bharat thanks him. Bhakti Rasamrit Maharaj already mentioned. Um, how the magazine was passed down. Kesha Maharaj and he are just like friends. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And that's all of the official intro. But I think one thing Chaitanya Charan said once um, is that I have a question before that. So nowadays, we were in the month of March now, 1st of March. Uh, so the sun's setting a little late, right? Later than the winter. But it's, isn't it cold? Like mm-hmm. too cold for March? And that just brought me to think that one thing Chaitanya Charan Prabhu says is that warmth is sometimes more important than light. Because we've got 5pm, 6pm sunsets now, we have the light, but we don't necessarily have the warmth which we also heavily desire. And that warmth, so in this intro we spoke about the light of knowledge of Chaitanya Charan Prabhu. But one thing I want to make all of you aware of is his warmth of love as well. And as intelligence sharp he is, he is also very personal, compassionate and thoughtful. I study economics at uni and they say economics is not only a science but also an art. And the same goes for spirituality. It's not only a science but also an art, a social science. And that's why it's my singular honour to not only welcome the spiritual scientist but also the spiritual artist or the spiritual social scientist amidst all of you Please,
1: with a huge round of applause, welcome His Grace, Chaitanya Charanjit. <laughs> After that introduction, whatever I speak is going to be an anticlimax now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm grateful to be here with all of you today. Am I audible? Okay. Let's start the short prayers. Om Gyanathimirandasya Gyananjinshalakaya Chakshurun Miltam Yena Tasmai Shri Gurave Namaha Nama Om Vishnupadaya Krishna Prishtaya Bhutale Srimade Bhakti Vedanta Swami Itinamne Namaste Saraswati Devi, Guravani Pracharini, Nirvisheshya Shunyavadi, Pascha Tideshitarine, Vanchakalpataru Pescha, Kripa Sindhupya Evacha, Patitanam Bavanepio, Vaishnavipio Namonamaha, Jai Shri Krishna Chaitanya, Prabhu Nityananda, Shri Atvay Tagadhar, Shri Vasa Brinda Bhakta Vrinda. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare, Hare Krishna. Whatever I am going to speak, I will summarize right in the beginning in one sentence, and then I will elaborate depending on how much there is need to elaborate at any time during the session if any of you have any questions feel free to ask them and I will feel free to not answer them <laughs> 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 meaning if the question is not immediately relevant as it will be answered a little later I will answer it later but others answer later so I will use this as a whiteboard visible there So basically the way I put it is science is the study of matter and spirituality is the study of what matters. Mm -hmm. So study of what matters and this broad understanding is vital to recognize how to approach the interrelationship between the two. So, this talk I'll take in three parts. Well, why is study science the study of matter? Why is it not the study of what matters? We'll look at that. Then, I'll look at when we say spirituality is the study of what matters, what does it mean? And then, where do these two overlap? Whether they agree, disagree, or go independent, we'll explore some sample areas of that. Now science, as I said, is the study of matter. What this means is that when the age of science started, there was some time Galileo, Newton, basically when they started observing the world around us, the world is immensely complex. Karl Popper, a philosopher of science, said that science is the art of systematic oversimplification. So systematic oversimplification. What he meant by that is that nobody can study all of nature in all of its complexity. So when we are going to study, we take some parameters of nature and we focus on them. So what science did was it took nature... Nature means the observed reality. I am using a general word for it. The reality is divided into primary qualities and secondary qualities. Now, the primary qualities according to science or according to this particular approach of science are those which are measurable. So, length, breadth, velocity, viscosity, luminosity... All of these are measurable parameters. And they were focused on because they could be objectively studied. This, the findings could be replicated. But in the process, everything that cannot be measured was treated as a secondary quality. And this focus on the measurable quality, parameter, qualities of nature has had a phenomenal transformative effect we have been able to find out extraordinary correlations between the various parameters in nature. That's how we have the laws of physics. And from there, we, we have so many other fields of knowledge. And that has transformed the world around us. At the same time, whenever focus goes on one thing, focus goes away from other things. So, as science started explaining and transforming more and more of the world around us, there were some scientists, not all scientists, who started becoming overconfident. And they started claiming that everything could be explained solely through science. And that there is no need for any other form of knowledge. So everything non-measurable could also be reduced ultimately down to the measurable. And this, as I said, was a result of the relative successes of science, which is spectacular. However, this particular idea is technically called as scientism. It's a portmanteau of science plus imperialism. So, when science has an imperialistic attitude toward all other branches of knowledge and claims that it is supreme, the scientism is actually different from science. Science is a way of looking at the world. Scientism is more of an ideology. It is the claim that there is no form of knowledge that is valid if it is not substantiated through science. Now, significantly, there is no scientific proof for scientism. That science is the only way of acquiring knowledge. I'll use some examples of this from daily life as well as later on, from other things. So, to understand this, see, generally, whatever we want to understand, what we try to do is, we try to place it In a cause effect context, say if you have a friend and normally they're very nice and suddenly they're rude and they're yelling and they're completely disagreeable, yes, what happened? Now, what happened means why has your behavior changed like this? So, generally, whenever we look for an explanation, you want to understand something, say okay, maybe they heard you got some bad news, you failed in some exam, or you had a breakup, or something like that because you're irritable, whatever it is, you try to understand that. So, when we try to understand the world, we try to place it in a cause-effect context. And placing it in a cause-effect context is very helpful for us in understanding. So, now explaining something can mean many things, but it means cause-effect context. So, for example, consider the incident that started off the scientific revolution that was say when Newton is the, the app, Newton the apple now, some people say the apple fell on top of him some people fell it in front of him it, some people fell in front of him but wherever it is now when that apple fell on top of Newton what happened? imagine if instead of Newton there was a monkey sitting over there and the apple had fallen on top of there. what would the monkey have done? Yeah, I've just eaten it and gone away. Now, most humans might have also done the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Or they're a little short tempered, they look at somebody to hit them or apple and you hit me, I'll hit someone. <laughs> but the idea is Newton asked the question what made the apple fall? And it is his brilliance that he came up with the theory of. So, if we consider apple falling is the incident. Now, the explanation he came for it is gravity. Having said that, Newton also believed in God. And he believed that is attributed to have said that. O Father, I think thy thoughts after thee. He saw his scientific discoveries as spiritual insights into how God had fashioned the universe. So that means for him, the same event had another explanation. And that was the divine arrangement. And he didn't consider multiple explanations as contradictory. He saw them as complementary. Depending on the frame of, what what are we focusing on? So his belief in God did not stop him from looking for the mechanism by which the apple had fallen. So we could say this, gravity, is the mechanical explanation. This we could say is a more personal explanation. And the two are not contradictory. Even in our day-to-day life, we understand the same event can have multiple explanations. So, right now, if, so you start feeling cold. Now you could feel cold because maybe you're not wearing warm clothes, maybe because you're sitting near a window, which is open, maybe it's because uh, you're having fever. Maybe it's because uh, you've eaten some cold food and the effect is coming upon you. The same event can have multiple causes. And intelligence means to know which cause to focus on. We say, oh, you know, there's climate change, and because of that, it's cold. Okay, somebody says, I'm feeling cold. Some guest comes to our house and they say, I'm feeling cold. What to do? There's climate change. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not the relevant explanation at that time. We give them some warm clothes, give them some blankets, some comforters. So, intelligence means to know which level of explanation, which causal context to choose when. So, just to, uh, so this idea that there can be multiple causes for the same ex- event, or not multiple causes, you could say, multiple cause-effect correlations or explanations for the same event, this is something which we all understand intuitively. Now, let's consider an example where, say, somebody might go completely off in giving a cause of a coronary. Say there is, I was just looking around the school, you have so many, so many sports stadiums over here, sports. So say there's a cricket match, Maybe India-Pakistan cricket match is there, and the World Cup final is there. And say Virat Kohli is batting, and India needs a sixer of the last ball. And the ball is a shot, the ball it's a hook and it goes for a six. And everybody celebrates. And then in the post match interview, Cole is asked, How did you hit that six? He says, By Newton's laws of motion. <laughs> <laughs> now, is that a correct explanation? Y- yeah, it is not incorrect. But it's not the relevant explanation. By Newton's laws of motion, you can say, okay, the ball came at this speed, the bat was swung at this speed, the bat's weight was this much, and the bat and the ball collided at this angle. If they had collided at a slightly different angle, the ball would have ballooned up, would have caught by the filter instead of going over the boundary. So, Newton's laws of motion is a valid explanation. But that is not the relevant explanation. What we would want to know over there is, how did you anticipate that there would be a bouncer? Or how do you play the hookshots hook, over there? that now I am practicing this, I studied this ball, I knew this is what he would do. So there we are looking for the personal explanation. So the mechanical and the personal explanations can both go together. And the two again, as I said, they are not contradictory, they are complementary. So science focuses on the mechanical explanations. And that's fair enough. Science works by a method called methodological naturalism. That means science, as a matter of methodology, looks for natural explanations for natural phenomena. By here, natural means mechanical, mathematical as it's possible. That's the way science works. And as a methodology, it's perfectly fine. However, there is a difference between methodological naturalism and metaphysical naturalism. Metaphysical naturalism these two are not equal, so metaf- meta- so if say the apple has fallen, methodological naturalism means to understand what made the apple fall as a mechanical as a mechanism. Metaphysical naturalism holds that this is the only explanation. And there is no other explanation at all. That, that means, so, science is methodologically naturalistic. Scientism is metaphysically naturalistic. And there is no proof within science itself that there are no other explanations of the same event possible. There could be. We don't know. Science chooses not to study other explanations. And that's perfectly fine. But that does not mean that there are no other explanations possible. Because the universe is complex. And as we are, as science has advanced, we have relativity, we have quantum physics. So we are finding that the same matter, physics is considered the most fundamental of sciences. And even within physics, we are having different way, different models for explaining reality. And quantum physics and relativity are basically contradictory in many ways. They're violently contradictory And yet the, in terms of the conceptual model. And yet, in terms of the implementation, they both work in their domains. So, which is real? Well, it's a model. It's one level of explanation which you would say, generally quantum physics works for subatomic particles. Relativity is especially relevant for objects moving at near the speed of light, cosmic objects. And they both work in their own way. So the idea that the same thing can have multiple levels of explanation is not just something which is there in our common experience. It is also an idea at the cutting edge of science. So science, as I started with the point, that science is the study of matter. And as far as the study of matter goes, Credit needs to be given for the hard work of the scientists, for the brilliance of the technologists who have used the scientific knowledge to come up with various comforts and facilities and the way the world has been transformed. Now the challenge, the danger comes when science morphs into scientism. Scientism is the idea that there is no reality beyond the naturalistic. There is no reality beyond the material. And the problem with this is, okay, I, I, this is the first point I made, science is the study of matter. Any questions, objections, <coughs> concerns at this point? Yes. Yes. That's a valid concern. So, one of the reasons why science works so well is because it focuses on measurable parameters, and measurable parameters it, it, it makes it relatively easier to replicate, to analyze, to evaluate. So that's that's perfectly that's the strength of science. At the same time, reality is not that simple. See, I'll explain why reality is not that simple. So, the second part of the topic was spirituality is the study of what matters. Now, if we look at science, the way science divides things into primary and secondary characteristics. So, now, generally, if we consider the mathematically measurable parameters, they... Maybe primary in science, but if we consider our daily experience, are they the most primary parameters that we think of? If you meet someone, I met a very interesting person, okay, that person weighs 150 pounds and is 5 feet 7 inches, okay, it's a useful parameter, but does that tell us anything about their personality? What makes them interesting? If somebody is very tall, very short, very thin, very obese. That might be of some relevance to the discussion. But most of the things that attract us to people, they are not just based solely on... The physically measurable parameters are a part of it. But they are not the essence of it. It's considered even food. Leave alone anything spiritual... Generally for us when we experience the world we experience the world in terms of sense objects. Now sense objects primarily means there is color, there is taste, there is form associated there is beauty. Now none of these are scientifically measurable. We have amazing technological advancement in the food processing industry yet we can't have anything like a tasteometer isn't it? <laughs> that, okay, how tasty is this food? You can say how much sugar it has, how much how much oil it has, how much spice it has. Whatever you can say. But taste, now taste is an important parameter for us. But science, how can we measure that? Now, why? Now, this is not a criticism of science. It's just a contextualization of science. Like saying that the President of America... <coughs> Is not the emperor of the world. It's not a criticism of the president of America. If the president of America takes that as a criticism, that is his problem. Isn't it? <laughs> so, so, if we consider, even with respect to, we consider physical reality. Even in physical reality, there are some, there are some things which are measurable. Physical reality is something measurable, and even with respect to physical reality, there's something which is not measurable. So, we may use Photoshop to design a picture, design a cover image, or something like that. Now, Photoshop can tell us exactly how much percentage color we have used where. But when does the image really look beautiful? Now, that's something, the beauty is again not a measurable parent. So beauty, taste, fragrance, is not measurable. If you go further, then one of the primary purposes of medical science is to free people from pain. And yet, with all our medical advancement, we don't really have anything like a painometer. A doctor can estimate. Oh, your, your bone has got dislocated. This must must be very painful. But how do you quantify pain? Doctors may ask on a scale of one to ten, how much is the pain this is. One thousand. <laughs> a patient in this, it's unbearable. <laughs> so, so we, we can't have a panometer. Nowadays, relationships are a matter of such great anxiety. When two people are trying to develop a relationship, each person wants to know whether the other person really cares for me. Now, if a boy proposes to a girl, please marry me. I have to, so, convenient, the girl had a love meter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's put it on your heart. Let's see how much you love me. <laughs> now, we don't have anything like that. So, as I talk it. Is pain, there is love. These are all very important things for us. But none of these are measured. So the point I am making is, the world, in our daily experience, often these become secondary. And these become primary. So the world of science does not necessarily match in its valuation with the world of our daily experience. And this is where the spirituality as given in the Vedic literature can be very helpful. It says that reality is three level. There is physical reality, then there is mental reality and then there is Spiritual reality. So, the non-measurable aspects of physical reality. That these are characterized, These are aspects of physical reality only. But they are non-measurable. And how are they experienced? They are experienced through these higher domains. To the level of the mind and ultimately through the level of the spirit. So, These, so now I am talking about two distinct things over here. First is, that I talk about the study of matter and the study of what matters is what we are discussing. So when I talk about spirituality, the study of what matters. I started by making this point, that even in our daily life, what matters is not always matter. Or what is not always measurable. Or what is measurable is not always what matters. I was saying that, Everything that is countable doesn't count, everything that counts is not countable. So the point is that what really matters in life, that is what spirituality is supposed to tell us. When Parikshit Maharaj sits down to hear the Srimad Bhagavatam, or when Arjuna in the middle of the battlefield wants to study the Bhagavad Gita or wants to hear the Bhagavad Gita, at that time. But they are not looking for material knowledge. It's remarkable that Krishna and Arjuna are in the middle of the battlefield, but there is practically very little reference to the war in the Bhagavad Gita. There is no mention of battle strategy at all. There is no mention of war weapons at all. So Arjuna already had the knowledge of matter. He knew the weaponry that he could use for fighting. But at that time, His question was, what really matters? What is important for me? Is the kingdom, gaining the kingdom more important? Or is protecting the lives of my relatives more important? And the Gita tells him that actually there is something more important than both of these things. And that is your real identity and your real destiny. You are a part of the divine. You are meant to connect in love with the divine. When Parikshit Maharaj is about to die in seven days, at that time when he hears the Bhagavatam in the fifth canto, the Bhagavatam cosmology, his interest is not in getting a PhD in cosmology. He is interested in remembering Krishna. And the point of the Bhagavatam is that Krishna consciousness, remembrance of Krishna, can happen in two broad ways one is, we bring Krishna into our consciousness. This is the normal way we, so we come to the temple, we chant the holy names, we hear Krishna's pastimes, we bring Krishna into our consciousness. But there is another way to be Krishna consciousness, that is, bring what is in our consciousness in, in connection with Krishna. That means, what is already there within me, what is already there in my mind, how can I use that to remember Krishna? So at that time, thousands of years ago, when the Bhagavatam was spoken, there was a prevailing concept of cosmology. And that was already in his mind, but he wanted to know, how can I connect this knowledge of cosmology with Krishna? With, it's already there in my mind how can I use it to remember Krishna and that's why in the Bhagavatam if you consider the 16th chapter 25th chapter those are the chapters, 10 chapters which is called cosmology, and there the focus is there are some figures and facts described but some description of Jambudhip is there and there's some dimension and after that there's a long series of verses which are the prayers by the residents of Jambudhip to the Supreme Lord. The point of the Bhagavatam is not to give cosmog- cosmography or geography. The point is of the Bhagavatam is to show how everywhere in the universe there is dharma and devotion. And thus, oh Parikshit Maharaj, what you are doing is what thoughtful people all over the world are doing. focusing on Krishna. So the purpose of the Bhagavatam, the purpose of spirituality, so I'm talking, i starting from scripture. I'm giving this as an example. I started by saying, saying of how in our daily life also, what matters is not really matter all the time. And I give an example, in scripture, what happens is, the focus is on what matters. And there is knowledge of matter given over there. But that is not the primary thing. The primary knowledge is, the study of what matters. And then, now, when we understand spirituality for ourselves, or we try to practice spirituality, Even then, what are we trying to do? For example, when people meditate or people go to some, they hear some serene music, they go close to nature, what are they trying to do? They are trying to reconnect with themselves. They are trying to realign themselves with what really matters for them. When we ourselves become a little more spiritually conscious, what happens is, we might be agitated. This person said like this to me and that person did that to me and... I made this mistake over here and I couldn't achieve this and that didn't work out. We are agitated. And then, as we become more spiritually conscious, it's okay. But these things matter. But they don't matter so much. Now, there is my inner stability, my inner consciousness, my calmness that matters even more. These things will come and then go. So, spirituality is meant to align us with what really matters in our life. And that's how, amid agitation, it can bring calmness. Amid confusion, it can bring clarity. In fact, whenever we talk about any impurity, whether we talk about greed, or we talk about jealousy, hmm, or we talk about anger, what do they do? All of these have one common feature. They distort or we can say even invert, our understanding of what matters when I am angry with someone putting that person in their place becomes the most important thing but maybe before I put somebody in their place I should put myself in their place What are they going through? Why did they do like this? But when we get angry, we take one small incident and we can... It may not be small, it may be a big incident, but generally, the causes of anger are never as painful as the consequences of anger. When we act out of anger, we end up making bad things worse. So what happens is, each of these, we can talk about jealousy, we may have a friend, do something, they attain some success, they gain something, and then we feel so angry, we feel so so bad, that we want to pull that person down. And maybe I had a temporary bad feeling at that time, but what happened was in that bad feeling, I did something which ruins my friendship, which goes against my own values, which gives me regret, which makes me maybe culpable, if not legally, morally. So basically, when we talk about spirituality it is about aligning our priorities with what matters and most of what we call as impurities are not just religious taboos they are actually inner forces which distort or invert our understanding of what matters so spirituality is meant to help us first of all recognize what matters and then to realign ourselves with what matters. And from that perspective, science and spirituality can both work together harmoniously. Science can improve the outer world. We have, in the past, we used to use bullock carts or chariots, and now we can use cars and planes for flying. It's impressive. Science can improve things in the outer world spirituality can improve things in the inner world. In the inner world, we have misconceptions and we have impurities that distort our understanding of what matters. And correcting that is extremely important. And this is, when I say what matters, it doesn't even have to be according to some some scripture written by someone. Even according to our own value system, the what really matters for us, we don't focus on that too much or we get diverted from that quite often. So, this way if you see, both of them have their own domains. Science is the study of matter and it can improve things in the outer world. Spirituality is the study of what matters and it can improve things in the inner world. Now, there are areas, I'll conclude this point, there are areas where the two may seem to be contradictory but generally this contradiction occurs because of three reasons one is overreach due to science second is overreach due to spirituality <coughs> and the third is the reduction of complexity to simplicity it's something is very complex and we make it very simple so science may overreach and like i give the example of scientism Scientism is an example of science overreach. Say, for example, if I have a map, I'll talk about resolving contradictions. If if there are contradictions, how do we resolve it? First is science overreach. Now, I will not go into too many scientific examples, but I'll give a simple day-to-day example to understand this idea of overreach. Suppose we have a map, and we're going to meet a friend, and that map is guiding us. Okay, turn right, go left, and you'll come to a... Come to a hill, then you'll come to a river, then you'll come to an expressway, and everything that the map says is right. And then we start as everything that the map says turns out to be right. We start trusting the map more and more and more. And then finally we reach our friend. You're, you have arrived at your destination, and you go and knock at the door, and knock at the door. Our friend opens it and "Hey, welcome!" And they we look at a map. I don't see you in your in my. I don't see you in my map. Therefore, you don't exist. Say, your brain doesn't exist. (laughs) So what has happened is, there is. Well, if I trust my map, that is good. But if my trust my my trust in my map makes me deny the reality of my very friend who is in front of me, what has happened is this is a. Non-scientific extrapolation of scientific data. Scientific data is that I use the map and whatever I follow the map, I got to the destination. But from that, when I extrapolate it to a non-scientific degree, that's where the problem comes. So, similarly, scientists may say that okay. There is some scientists. Again, when I use our scientists, I am using it more in the sense of those who are following scientism, not science person. So, they say that there is no such thing as consciousness. There is no such thing as soul. Well, they are beyond the domain of the study of science. So, that is something which is a non-scientific extrapolation. So, there can be scientific overreach. Now, similarly, there can be scriptural or spiritual overreach. A spiritual overreach means what that if we try to attribute God or spirituality as the explanation for everything, then we deny science its own domain. So for example, if somebody says, why did I get this sickness? Oh, it was God's will. Okay somebody eats a dozen ice creams on a cold night like this and the next day the throat is in agony now was that god's will well no it was your own actions uh, you ate that cold that's why it's a problem over here so sometimes it has happened that in the name of bringing god's will everywhere common sense explanations as well as rational explanations are denied their place. So for example in America there are there are some places in universities where hmm, where, uh, where there is a strong opposition to religion. America southern part of America so the Bible belt is quite evangelically Christian and, some, and Christianity is very big and uh, multifaceted but some, uh, some aspects of Christianity are Hard line. I'm not using Christianity uh, to target Christianity. I'm just giving this as an example. That could be in any religion, including in the Vedic path also. So what happened was, there is this idea that all our sufferings are because of our sins. And if you accept Jesus as your savior, then you are, you are freed from all your sins. And if you are freed from all your sins, then you will have no more problems. So there are there are young kids who go to colleges. This happen, now, stop, it's in stopped. But they go to colleges, and when they go to college, schools or colleges, they they have some kind of experience, maybe some, some speakers have some charisma and they get captivated. And there might be kids who are Christianity is often associated with some kind of magical healing. So they say, oh, you come there with glasses or crutches, and you just you no longer need them. There are kids who need glasses for functioning.
0: They don't.
1: No need for glasses. Just give it up. You can see. He says, no, I can't see. <laughs> Have faith. Uh, no, I still can't see. Uh, Have faith. So first of all, the poor person is not able to see. And then you make them feel guilty that you are not having enough faith. That's why you're not seeing. So uh, now, if you're not seeing, that's just a mechanical thing. The ice function has decreased and use a mechanical function, mechanical arrangement for fixing that. So, if we try to bring God into every domain, God, we don't bring God in the material domain in the sense that God does not replace the material mechanism in this world. In the Vedic context, we have a science, we have a medical science called Ayurveda. Now, its methodology is different from allopathy. But even Ayurveda is methodological naturalistic. If you go to Ayurveda doctor and say my stomach is upset, he doesn't say God is angry. you. <laughs> there's a, there's a Kapha Vata Pitta, there's an imbalance because of those. And that's caused it. And let's see what material mechanism we can use to fix it. So there is a possibility that if we bring scripture or God as God is maybe the ultimate explanation for everything. Gravity would not exist without God. So in that sense, we can say God is the ultimate explanation. But we start bringing God as the immediate explanation for everything. Then we deny science its valid jurisdiction. And this is, these are the, this, when, when this is done by some religious people and that's what puts intelligent people away. They Just put them off completely. You, know, you, you people are superstitious. You are irrational. I don't want anything to do with you. And the third is complexity is reduced to simplicity now some places it is good to reduce complexity to simplicity einstein said that einstein is said to have said there are many things which Einstein is attributed to don't know how many of them are actually true he said to have said that hmm, that scientific laws should be science should be made as simple as possible but not more simple than possible sometimes reality itself is complex. So, questions like the origin of the universe, the origin of life, these are very complex things. None of us have first-person evidence about what exactly happened. What was the mechanism by which something came out? What were the non-mechanical factors involved over there? So, were there non-mechanical factors involved? So, when somebody just reduces complexity to simplicity, this is right, this is wrong. Well, maybe, maybe is the Big Bang Theory wrong? Well, if the claim is the Big Bang Theory alone led to the creation of the universe, well, that is something we won't agree with. But could the Big Bang theory be a mechanism by which Krishna arranged for the universe to come out? Well, we don't know for sure, yes or no. There are some broad similarities. Broad similarities is that our understanding also the universe starts from a particular point, then it expands. Big Bang Theory also has the idea that it expands. There is a discharge of energy which is because of the explosion occurs. So there is a shita there is new glances. Now I'm not saying the Big Bang Theory is mentioned in the scriptures. What I'm saying is, that say, to say that Big Bang Theory is right and therefore there is no God. Or Big Bang Theory is wrong, there is only God. This is what? We are reducing complexity to unmerited, unwarranted simplicity. These are complex questions. And therefore, One of the aspects over here is humility. Humility means that maybe there are some questions for which we don't have answers immediately. But that does not mean science or scripture, either of them has to be rejected. Or science or spirituality, either of them has to be rejected. For their own domain of expertise, we can use both. And where they seem to contradict, if it's our interest, we can go and further study it and explore it. Or otherwise, we can leave it to the experts. It isn't really... Even in science, is it that every single thing that we don't understand, we make it our lives, we should understand it? Not necessarily. So if we can avoid these three things, then we'll find that science and spirituality can both be valuable human resources that can help us in our life's journey towards understanding, towards progress, and ultimately towards fulfillment. So I'll summarize. I spoke three main points. First was, what is science? Do you remember? Study of, Study of matter. Thank you. So that is, I discussed how science focuses on what it calls as primary qualities and those are measurable. And that led to a lot of success, which is laudable, but that is based on methodological naturalism. From there, if you go to metaphysical naturalism, it's not just natural expression, but there's no non-natural explanation. That is where science, uh, it's no longer scientific. Like, The same event can have multiple explanations. Why am I feeling cold? Or how did the ball go over the boundary? Why did the apple fall? There could be multiple explanations. So spirituality is a different domain of knowledge. It is, what is spirituality? Do you remember? Study of what matters. So, and I discussed here three things. How first is that even what matters to us in our daily life is not necessarily matter the taste fragrance beauty it's not easily measurable and also if you consider in our own life when we uh, practice spirituality we want to connect with what matters for us and what spirituality considers impurity, jealousy or anger or greed all those they misalign us from what matters to us so what matters and what is ma- and what matter is—they are two different things. And lastly, discuss these two can both work in parallel, science can improve the outer world, spirituality can improve the inner world, and where they contradict, it's either because of overreach on either side or oversimplification of complexity by either side. But without getting into such unnecessary controversies, we can avail of both the resources and improve as well as enrich our life. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna. Are there any questions or comments? Yes, Hi, um,
0: you spoke about the three levels of the material, um, the mental, and the spiritual. You were talking about the spiritual overreach,
1: and um, we had some time ago the discussion. One thing is, let's say, material pain. Let's say we are actually materially hurt. We know that this understanding Christian, Krishna and understanding spirituality will not help us from that. But for example, mental distress. Um, an argument was made that Arjuna, in the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita, he
0: was in mental distress, and then understanding spirituality actually helped him out of the mental distress. How does that kind of correlate? Is how we
1: are we identifying with mind in that case and understanding spirituality, or are we just of, um, stop with the mind and identifying with the soul and that's why we separate ourselves from that pain, mental okay, pain. Okay, good question. So can spirituality heal mental pain? That's a broad question. Well, it depends. See, in the yoga texts, broadly it is said that there are three levels to the mind. This is the soul, this is the body, this is the mind, this is the soul. So the So the mind itself is said to have, there is a inner mind, there is a middle mind, and there is an outer mind. So, the outer mind is very much related with the body and the brain.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, for example, if somebody is feeling, uh, somebody is just not able to sleep. Now, maybe there is some chemical imbalance in their brain, and they just, they, they take some chemical and they are able to sleep. Sometimes, functionally, there are, that can be the structural or uh, biochemical imbalance, structural damage or biochemical imbalance in the brain that can cause emotions. See, emotions are coming from something higher, but they are associated with something physical. So, problems associated with the outer mind, they will largely need some some physical treatment. On the other hand, when we go to the inner mind, See, with respect to our emotions and our desires, also, you know, I wanted to eat some food, and that food got over before I reached it. I feel annoyed. I feel irritated. Yeah, that's that's unhappiness. But say, if I had a close friend, and that close friend died in an accident, is that unhappiness of the same degree? It's it's completely different. It's unhappiness, but there's a huge difference. So the inner mind is associated with not just superficial desires, it is associated with like deeper values and our deepest longings. So Arjuna faced a crisis of purpose at the start of the Gita. So sometimes you say Arjuna had an emotional breakdown, Arjuna had the mental health breakdown, which, which is not wrong. But Arjuna was not just stressed. Arjuna was confused. He was confused about what is the right thing to do. And when that was resolved, he became calm. So Arjuna did not have a chemical imbalance in the brain that had caused this problem. Now that might have been there, generally anything that happens that has a physical component to it. But that was not the primary cause for him. He was confused, what really matters? And so, depending on the kind of mental health problem that is there, we'll have to see what approach will work. So in general, uh, as we are moving more and more towards uh, what has been called the, the medicalization of health. That means for every single problem, every sneeze, take a pill. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody has you know, somebody has poor health, they just lost their job, their relationships are broken apart, and they say, I'm depressed, give me some pills. Okay. Maybe you need to take some pills at that time, but that is not going to fix the issue unless you deal with the real issues in your life. You have to work at improving your relationship. You have to find a good job. You have to work at improving your health. So, if there is a depressing reality in your life, taking depression, antidepressant pills are not going to really help deal with that. That could be one tool in a multifaceted approach. So, we cannot solve human problems by chemical means. So, as, so that's why in some cases, mental health problems can be addressed by spirituality. Especially if a person is confused about what is the meaning of life, what is the purpose of life, does my life even have any value? And that is the cause of their depression. Then understanding that they are, in, they are at the core indestructible, understanding that we are all beloved parts of the divine, Understanding that our life has a purpose that can deal with that existential depression. But if it's more of a neurochemical cause, so we want to avoid both extremes. If we consider a pendulum, one extreme is to appeal for every mental problem. We don't consider anything else necessary. And then, So this would be, you could say, the extreme materialistic approach. Mm -hmm. Now the extreme spiritualist approach, extreme extreme spiritualist approach would be, no pill for any mental problem. Just chant Hare Krishna. Well, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. The idea is, our understanding is, there are three levels of reality. There is the body, the mind, and the spirit. And each of them needs its appropriate treatment. So what would be the appropriate treatment for the mind? That depends. At the deepest level, definitely, it is spirituality that can come and uh, clarify and make the mind contented. But at, is, at other, there are, could be other aspects also which we appropriate dealing with. Does that answer your question? Okay. you had a question no? five Yes, it's an important question. Why is it that sometimes religious people become less compassionate than other people? Well, (coughs) the two reasons, my understanding, mainly for this. One is that our spirituality is meant to expand our identity beyond our humanity. It is not meant to extinguish our humanity. So, you can say, generally, if you tell people you are not your body, well, that may be a philosophical truth, but functionally, the body is a part of who we are. So, generally, the way I say is, you are not. I will rarely say you are not your body. I say you are more than your body. You have physical side, but there is more to you than that. So, what happens is, as I said, if there are three levels of real, three levels to a self, is the body the mind, and the soul. So we are compassionate to the soul and we are indifferent to everything else. And that is why we come off as uncompassionate. Uh, uh, this is uh, something which uh, is slowly changing, I would say, in thousands, I mean, ten, 10, 15, 20 years ago, this was very much there. But now it is it is decreasing. We are recognizing that the per- embodied self is a whole. And if you really care for a person, you have to care for all aspects of the person. Body, mind and soul. But at the, at, at the level of the body, at least we would say that if a devotee is sick, if a devotee is near death, the whole community will come and support. That much we are doing. But at the level of the mind... If somebody is suffering from some mental health problem, somebody is dealing with some anarthas, and somebody is succumbed to some wrongdoings, the tendency is to demonize the person. It's like somebody is wounded, they need to be sent to the hospital, not the jail. Isn't it? So if somebody has some struggles with some moral standards, so our lack of compassion could come in two ways. One is, That we don't care for the physical mental side of people. And we do not not care for it. Prabhupada was not a big fan of humanitarian work. But that did not mean that he was against it. He said that we are providing spiritual wisdom, which is taking care of the soul. And there are many others who are providing humanity, doing humanitarian work. So why should we give up what we are doing to do something that others also do? We can say others, what they are doing is not enough. That is true. But Prabhupada is not against humanitarian work. If devotees can do both, there's nothing wrong in that. But the problem is sometimes Vishal Prabhupada's statements can be misunderstood. And we sometimes criticize or demonize or trivialize humanitarian work. And that can come off as heartless. And then for devotees, somebody is going through some struggles at a mental level. And at that time, they're wounded basically. They need support. But instead we condemn them. You, know, you are a fallen person. So, and then uh, we just uh, reject them. And that happens, then we come off as very uncompassionate at that time. So, I just read a letter of Srila Prabhupada. He's telling one of the managers that he says that nobody is obliged to do anything for us. He says, no one is obliged to be a member of his call. It is the responsibility of the leaders to inspire people to stay as members of our movement. If your management makes anyone go away, then that is mismanagement. I am paraphrasing what Prabhupada said. But the point is sometimes we just say, I am a strong devotee. I am not going to compromise. Okay, you are not going to compromise. But what are you doing is defeating the purpose. So, I think that's why when we misunderstand uh, what spirituality, what... So... When you understand what spirituality means, it means that, okay, I'm not just the body, I am more than the body. Expand our conception of our identity. But instead, what we do is we extinguish these sides. We extinguish our body, our mind, just focus on the soul. And we come up as uncompassionate. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Any other ways to
0: Yeah, you need to stop. Uh, You spoke (laughs) about measurability in science. And we tend to do that in our spiritual practice as well sometimes, like how many rounds did I chant, how many books have I read, etc. 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 But then again, you know, once you've read it, then some senior devotee comes and tells you it's not about knowledge, it's about realization. It's not about quantity, it's about quality of your rounds. So then again it becomes immeasurable. So how do we then track
1: See, there is more to bhakti than rules, but it's more, not less. <laughs> that means the rules are important, but it's not just that the rules alone are everything. See, in our tradition itself, there are resources. So we could say measurable parameters, we can probably equate with rules. If you chant this many rounds. You wake up at this time. You should do this, this, this. Those are rules. So, in our own tradition, there is this concept called Niyamagraha. Niyamagraha, it has two different meanings. One is that, okay, Niyamagraha, just rejecting the rules, saying that they are unimportant. Agraha is to not accept. And Agraha is to, that they are everything that's that the rules are here they are nothing rules don't matter bhakti is just a matter of the heart and yeah bhakti is a matter of the heart but the heart has to be expressed through actions you know, what the point of saying that yeah, something is in my heart but never comes out of the heart so if say if you consider ultimately that it's a relationship with Krishna like in any relationship, if you are serious about that relationship, we try to align our life, or at least adjust our life to some extent, in a way that we do some of the things that please the other person. And we avoid the things that displease the other person. That's just what is required in the relationship. And if the other person is a good person, then though the changes required for doing that are actually good for us. They bring out our higher side, and they push, push away our lower side. But with Krishna, that's what happens. So, if we say that there should be no rules at all, then that's a problem because then you're not serious about our relationship with Krishna. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, if we reduce the relationship with Krishna only to rules, then that doesn't work. The relationship is much more. So, Shri Prabhupada himself was very aware of these things. When Shri Prabhupada met the life, his, many of his life, the life members who supported him in in the building of many temples in India. Most of them were not really chanting 16 rounds. Most of them were not really very interested in becoming initially disciples. But Prabhupada appreciated the son's attitude. And they appreciated Prabhupada's saintliness, they appreciated Prabhupada's outreach. And they had, many of them had a very close relationship with Shri Prabhupada. And Prabhupada was not going around telling them how many rounds are you chanting and why are not doing this, why are not doing that. No, Prabhupada appreciated the Sivabhava. So I think as uh, we both as individuals and as leaders we mature, we will know when to emphasize rules and when to de-emphasize rules. Eventually, we as a movement cannot be a policing movement. You know, you have to do this, I can't do this. Yeah, there are certain basic parameters that are there. But ultimately, we inspire. And then every devotee will decide the boundaries within which they can function sustainably. So, that's how we move forward in life. So then every devotee may experience their relationship with Krishna within certain boundaries. And boundaries are going to be required. But what the boundaries are going to be, that can vary from person to person. Some devotees may get a lot of nourishment by doing outreach, say for example. Then they go for program, they stay late night, they talk with people. And then, if for them you tell them you have to wake up early in the morning. Well, you cannot uh, squeeze people from both sides. It's essentially if you don't sleep at the right time, you'll sleep at the wrong time. <laughs> so, if that is the source of nourishment of a devotee, then maybe that idea of waking up in the morning, which is important, may not be the most important source of nourishment for that devotee. For somebody else, waking up in the morning is the most important thing. Okay, that's good. That is the way they are experiencing Krishna. That is the way Krishna is manifesting in their heart. So generally, fanaticism happens when we insist that what works for me is the only thing that will work for everyone else and everybody else is not doing that that means nothing is working in their life there are some devotees we meet them and it's like you have to justify your existence as a devotee to them <laughs> so I think we can avoid that so and as we move forward we all find our space in our relationship with Krishna okay so thank you very much So, I have written a few books, especially some of the points that I spoke today are in this book, the Gita for daily mindfulness, 365 Reflections on the Bhagavad Gita, and okay, no, this mindfulness. So, these are 365 reflections. There are three sections in: nourish yourself, nourish your relationships, and nourish your devotion. Each article is based on one one verse from the Gita. The article is just one one page. So it's easy to read in 3-4 minutes and there are about 3-4 three, three, reflection questions. Three, 3 reflection questions can also help you to introspect. And there's a section in this, seeing the world through the eyes of the Gita. And much of what I spoke today is from this book. If you want to study the Gita itself? There are these two books. This is the Gita from a rational perspective. If God controls everything, do we really have free will? If the moods do everything, then why are we held responsible for our actions? we have to be detached from the fruits of our work, then what would motivate us to work? So questions that might come in the mind of a rational reader for the Gita, they addressed the 100 questions that addressed in this book. This is more from a Gita, from a relational perspective. That is, how the Gita is not just philosophy, but it's actually an expression of Krishna's love for Arjuna and divinity's love for all humanity. That's explained in this book. And there's a calendar 365 quotes. So like, I'm the study of matters, which is the study of what matters. There are, three, there are 365 quotes like that also available in this calendar. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So if you want any of these, they are available if you take all of them, there is a they are available at a discount also and I can sign some of them if you want. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna